Oh, welcome to Left Out, reality-based radio on WRCT 88.3 FM. Left Out examines the news and presents opinions from a point of view left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is produced by Matt Toops. Uh, listeners are invited to call us anytime during the program at 412-268-9728-268-WRCT. Or you can also send electronic mail, which we monitor during the show, by sending mail to bob at leftout.info. Uh, any announcements today, Danny? Uh, nothing more than the usual. Listen to Democracy Now! every morning uh, at 8 a.m. on WRCT. Um, Good. Well. So our first, we have a couple of guests today. But before we go to the guests, we have a few uh, few other items that we would like to discuss to bring into uh, start our discussion. One which I think is very topical and timely is the uh, the case of uh, Cindy Sheehan, which has been getting some uh, some coverage in the news, which is nice. Which is you, uh, just to remind our listeners, Cindy Sheehan is a woman who is uh, currently uh, staging a protest uh, in uh, in uh, Texas. What is the name of Bush's, Crawford? Uh, Crawford, Texas. Uh, uh, who her son was killed uh, in Iraq uh, uh, some about a year, uh, within sometime during the last uh, six or nine months, and she is uh, insisting on seeing the president to ask him why it is that her son died. And as we know, and as often commented on Left Out and other uh, similarly minded radio programs, uh, whatever the reasons for going to war in Iraq, what we do definitely know is that we. One thing we do know for sure is we do not know the real reasons, and uh, there are all sorts of stated reasons which are manifest rubbish, and we've been through that many times. And uh, there's certainly been a very systematic attempt to uh, to cover up and uh, any serious investigation of what the true reasons for invading Iraq were. So uh, Mrs. Sheehan is, uh, went down to Crawford along when, when Bush went on his uh, month-long uh, vacation, uh, one of his uh, many vacations. Uh, 20, 20% of his presidency yeah. is spent on vacation. Uh, that's 20%. It's a working that's, vacation. Uh, that's, uh, that's 10 weeks per year. I don't know anybody who has 10 weeks of vacation per year, but never mind. Uh, though we are in a state of war, uh, we, he has plenty of time for vacation. So she's down there in Crawford, Texas, and demanding to see the president and has been harassed uh, from from square one, as you can imagine, because uh, we must maintain the pretense that uh, Shrub has any idea what he's doing and that the and that he's a you know a fearless patriotic leader. Now, uh, so Mrs. Sheehan is uh, uh, the most recent thing is the New York Times has reported that the uh, Secret Service intends to arrest her on Thursday uh, because she poses a threat to national security. The threat to national security consists of possibly embarrassing the president. And uh, the event on Thursday that's relevant is that uh, Donald Rumsfeld and uh, Condoleezza Rice are coming to Crawford and may have to actually drive down the road she's on. And there may actually be a camera shot with uh, Mrs. Sheehan in it, and they want to prevent that, so they're going to arrest her. I think we should uh, protest this uh, vigorously. Uh, this is a clear uh, attempt to suppress her free speech rights. If there's anything, if the First Amendment means anything, it means being able to do something like this. So I want to play an ad for for you from realvoices.org, which is a, uh, uh, I uh, must warn you, a highly emotional uh, statement from uh, Mrs. Uh, Sheehan about her son's death. Uh, his sergeant said, Sheehan, you don't have to go because my son was a mechanic. He was a Humvee mechanic. And Casey said, where my chief goes, I go. And he knew what had to be done. And he died in his best friend's arms in Iraq. I imagined it would have hurt if one of my kids was killed, but I never thought it would hurt this bad. 
especially someone so honest and brave as Casey, my son, when you haven't been honest with us, when you and your advisors rushed us into this war, how do you think we felt when we heard the Senate report that said there was no link between Iraq and 9-11? This message was paid for by realvoices.org. So I recommend to our listeners that you uh, look. This actually a video, uh, but you've heard the audio, obviously. Uh, and uh, I uh, there's a link on our webpage. There's to a the, link on our webpage to the to, the, to yeah. the site, and you can have a look there. Um, and I just wanted to call our attention to our to our to our listeners to uh, Bush's callous treatment of this poor woman who he can doesn't even have the decency to to meet with her because, of course, he would have no clue what to say whatsoever. Well, he's never I don't think he's met with any of the he has met with her previously uh, about six months ago, along with some other families at the same time. Okay. They organized an event. And uh, and if you look on the website, we have links there. Uh, she describes her meeting with uh, Bush and she says that he he didn't even know her. He didn't even know the name of her son who was killed. He acted like it was a party atmosphere and was a really rather rude and inappropriate in his behavior. This is completely consistent with stories I've heard from other people who I know personally, Eric Carnegie Mellon, who have recently met uh, President Bush at the White House, and they were shocked to discover how inappropriate and awkward he was in his behavior. And uh, if you look at Sheehan's account, it's completely consistent with that. Anyway, I would like our listeners to pay close attention to this because we are dealing here with uh, really a fundamental issue of free speech rights in the U.S. and, and an issue that really exposes the, uh, the the truth about this administration. Okay, so the next topic uh, that I want to uh, we talk about is uh, the fact that this is the 60th anniversary of Nagasaki Day, the day that uh, the atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, Japan. Um, there's a there's a myth, a commonly held view that uh, the dropping of the atomic bombs in Japan was. Uh, was something which uh, accelerated the end of the war and saved lives. Um, it turns out that actually any historical uh, analysis of uh, what was going on proves that that's completely false. That myth is completely false. There was absolutely no strategic reason that it was necessary to uh, to bomb Japan with those bombs. Um, and uh, there's a there's a speech uh, by a, a scholar in this whole area called his name is Gar Alperovitz. And uh, we have a short segment of the speech. We only play only play six minutes of it. But if you listen to the whole speech, he develops all the de- the things in great detail. Um, so let's just listen to the uh, the beginning of um, the speech by uh, Gar Alperovitch regarding the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. I want to read you something that'll give you the latest what's called literature review summary in the most recent assessment of the modern historiography on the bombing of Hiroshima. This is from Diplomatic History, a scholarly journal. Careful scholarly treatment of the records and manuscripts opened over the past few years has greatly enhanced our understanding of why the Truman administration used atomic weapons against Japan. Experts continue to disagree on some issues, but critical questions have been answered. The consensus among scholars is that the bomb was not needed to avoid an invasion of Japan. It is clear that alternatives to the bomb existed and that Truman and his advisors knew it. 
I want to underscore the last part. It's long been understood by many specialists that the bombing was totally unnecessary, contrary to what you might see in the popular press. But that's an after-fact judgment, after the event. This judgment is that the scholars who are specialists and most knowledgeable say, and Truman and his advisors knew in advance, before using the bomb, that there were other ways to end the war without destroying these two cities. Now, that's a very controversial statement, but I want to underline the source of it. This is not a left-wing politician or a radical revisionist historian or a left socialist scholar saying this. The man who has assessed this does not belong to any of the scholarly camps. He's not a right-wing, left-wing, or middle-wing professor. He is currently the chief historian of the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission, a very neutral body, and he is telling you in this statement, this is what the scholarly literature, the most recent expert studies, say. It's not necessarily his opinion. It is what he tells you the experts are saying. Now, let me give you a couple more just by way of introduction, just so you get a sense of how others have understood this who've really gone into the documents, and then we can begin to talk about the story. This is something not from recent, not from recent assessment. This is something from 1946, and I'm going to give you two official 1946 studies of the decision, official government studies. Certainly, remember, the invasion of Japan, had it occurred would not have been, the one that might have cost any serious number of lives, would not, could not have occurred until March or April 1946. The bombs were dropped in August of 1945, six to seven months time before there would have been a real invasion of Japan. There was scheduled a first preliminary landing, not the full invasion, for November 1st, three months off. The reason you need to know these dates, I'm going to read you one, the conclusion of one official study from 1946. Certainly prior to 31 December 1945, and in all probability, pri that's well before an invasion, and in all probability prior to 1 November, Japan would have surrendered, even if the atomic bombs had not been dropped, even if Russia had not entered the war, and even if no invasion had been planned or contemplated. We're going to come back to the question about Russia entering the war. Russia was neutral at this point. That's the conclusion of the United States Official Strategic Bombing Survey in June of 1946. One final one. This one was discovered only five years ago. A Spanish scholar happened upon this top-secret study misfiled at the National Archives, and brought it to my, that's the way historical research works. Uh, and he brought it to my attention. No one seems to have noticed it, except the government officials who wrote it and did not make it public. This is 1946. War Department study by the Strategic Plan and Policy Group of the Operations Planning Division of the War Department, which is the key operational group that did planning for the military in World War II. Quote, the dropping of the bomb was the pretext seized upon by all leaders, as leaders of Japan, as the reason for ending the war. But the various chain of events, which we're going to talk about, that led up to this 
make it almost a certainty that the Japanese would have capitulated upon the entry of Russia into the war, which happened on August 8th, three months before an invasion, if the first landing seven months before an invasion. The Japanese leaders had decided to surrender and were merely looking for a sufficient pretext to convince the army group that Japan had lost the war and must capitulate to the Allies. The entry of Russia into the war would almost certainly have furnished this pretext and would have been sufficient to convince all responsible leaders that surrender was unavoidable. It goes on to say an invasion was only a remote, quote, quote, possibility. So I'm giving you just some of the headlines of the modern scholarship, most recent studies, and the 1946 official, two official studies of the decision. Now, why is that so different from what most Americans were taught and most Americans still believe? For instance, most Americans were taught, most Americans still believe that perhaps 500,000, perhaps a million lives were saved, American lives, and perhaps another million Japanese lives were saved by using the atomic bomb because it ended the war without an invasion. These studies, and I think the modern expert scholarship agree, that that is a myth, a complete myth. And one of the questions we want to come back to is how is it that a myth of that kind could be created and could survive for now almost 50 years? Uh, that was um, a scholar at the University of Maryland named Gar, Gar Alperovich talking about um, the myths surrounding the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, this is the Left Out program on WRCT. You can give us a call at 412-268-9728 if you want to talk about this or any other topic of our program today. Let me just make a couple of more comments. I listened to the whole speech. It's an excellent speech, and there's a link to it on our website. I recommend uh, that you listen to it. Um, whole thing, but one of the key points that, that he makes later on has to do with the uh, Potsdam uh, proclamation, which was a demand that Japan surrender by the, the Allies. And uh, he talks about how th- that uh, proclamation, um, originally there was a paragraph saying that the emperor of Japan would be, preser- would be preserved, would be allowed to stay in after Japan surrendered. They deleted that, uh, which would pretty much uh, make it much harder for Japan to be able to surrender, which was a ridiculous demand because, I mean... Um, uh, they, they, they left the emperor in place anyway. It was not important at all to the allies whether the emperor was in place or not. So um, the insistence or the refusal to allow – to to put that in the, uh, the Potsdam Declaration made it harder for J- Japan to be able to surrender. Uh, so all of this stuff led up to the, to the, to the use of the atomic bomb and it's uh, – and, uh, uh, it was with full knowledge that it really had nothing to do with uh, Japan at all. It had to do with uh, – uh, uh, <clears throat> The, uh, continuing with the Cold War against Russia and demonstrating the the, the, the U.S. power and, and uh, ability to, to to do, you know, heinous crimes like this, I guess. Um, so uh, we should move on to our um, our next part of our program. Um, uh, we have a guest on the line, um, Don McKenzie of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Don, are you there on the line? Hi, Don. Welcome to Left Out. Uh, this is Bob Harper. Yes, thank you for uh, for being on our show. Glad to be here. So Don um, is um, is an expert on automobiles, their environmental impact, uh, how to make cars more efficient, what 
uh, governmental policies should be being followed to to achieve improvements in these areas. And um, there's a number of topics we can talk about. Um, just for starters, um, uh, it would be a, a timely topic is uh, the energy bill that uh, President Bush signed yesterday. Uh, maybe you can comment on that regarding the issues of uh, autom- automotive issues that are um, that are uh, in, you know important. Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, the energy bill is, is proven to be a, a dirty and dangerous uh, piece of work that uh, really fails to uh, address the problem of our dependence on foreign oil and uh, automotive and uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, there are a few bright spots in it, however. Uh, notably some hybrid tax credits. Uh, unfortunately, these aren't uh, going to, to necessarily uh, do anything to, to solve our dependence on foreign oil because the, the, the thing that's really missing from the bill is uh, a, a significant increase in the fuel economy standards for the cars and trucks uh, that, uh, that we all buy. This is the uh, fastest and most effective way to uh, reduce the amount of oil that our cars and trucks are burning is to is to get more miles out of every gallon and most of the improvements uh that that we would need to make to get our our vehicles up to 40 miles per gallon uh these these technologies that we need to do this uh have already been developed and they're just sitting on automakers shelves and uh we just need them to put those technologies to work at a modest cost uh to consumers which will be uh, more than made up within just a couple of years of driving, especially at current gas prices. But uh, what, what's good news, this, what is a bright spot in this otherwise dirty and dangerous bill, is uh, some consumer tax credits for, uh, yeah. for uh, people who, who are considering buying hybrid vehicles. If you've been considering a, a hybrid, uh, after January 1st is going to be the time because there are going to be credits uh, of as much as $3,400 so uh, kind for of, uh, qualified for, hybrid vehicles. So uh, what would be a qualified hybrid vehicle? Like what, what, if I was, which car would I buy to get the maximum credit? Well, the, of the models that are out there right now, the biggest uh, credit will be going to uh, Toyota Prius purchasers. According to our estimates, uh, they'll be eligible for around $3,150 uh, as a tax credit. Now, is this just at, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, the Honda Accord Hybrid is eligible for uh, about $650. So this is a tax credit, which means it's not just something you take out of your income. This is actually uh, reduced from the tax that you have to pay. Right. This comes dollar for dollar off your final tax bill. So it's, it's much more beneficial than the uh, old uh, tax deduction uh, that was already in place. So... If you buy a new Prius and, and you can take three thousand dollars or thirty-one fifty off your uh, off your tax bill, and that's really good news, and that uh, should help to uh, to drive the, the market uh, for these vehicles. Unfortunately, um, there there are some dark spots even within uh, this this tax credit. Uh, they're going to be limiting the number of vehicles that are eligible uh, as soon as a manufacturer has sold. Uh, 60,000 units, that'll uh, trigger a phase-out that'll start uh, reducing that credit over the uh, over a year, over a period of about a year. But they were going to sell that many anyway without the tax credit, right? The Toyota well, was going to sell more than that. That's many. right. Toyota will, will probably hit this within the first six months. Uh, they will probably hit this limit. And so purchasers of uh, a Prius or a, a Lexus uh, 400H or a uh, Toyota Highlander hybrid... Uh, 
they've really only got about uh, six months uh, where they can be sure of getting a uh, the full the full credit amount. Uh, so what this is doing is it's penalizing uh, those those consumers that want to buy from the the leaders in the technology and those uh, manufacturers who've been first to the game and uh, and have really been driving the technology so far. And what it's going to do is reward those uh, who are who are coming in late, uh, like General Motors. So. Um... There's um, there's a question about hybrid technology. I mean, are all hybrid? There's a lot of new hybrid cars coming out, like hybrid SUVs. Uh, do you feel that those are is sort of as beneficial as the the original small hybrid cars? Well, I think uh, how beneficial uh, the vehicle is really depends on on uh, it varies on a case by case basis, uh, and there's there's nothing inherently. Uh, great uh, about a hybrid at all. What what really matters is how this technology is put to work. You know, uh, since 1985, uh, the average vehicle weight uh, has increased by 25 percent. Horsepower has gone up 86 percent. Zero to 60 times dropped by 27 percent, and fuel economies remain flat. And uh, and 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 all these these are all kinds of new technologies that have gone into vehicles in the last 20 years. And really, hybrid technology is not any different. Automakers can either use it to increase fuel economy significantly, or they might just use it to beef up uh, vehicle performance. And uh, what's good about the the new tax credits uh, that have been passed in in the energy bill is that they will uh, they are performance based, and they will give bigger credits to those vehicles that achieve bigger gains in fuel economy. So you have a comment. So on? this is good, uh, but what about the federal mileage, uh, fleet mileage standards, and uh, that used to apply and used to be one of the main uh, governing uh, governing uh, uh, criteria that drove uh, the improvement in the uh, auto mileage. Well, yes, yes. Uh, the fuel economy standards uh, have been flat for uh, close to twenty years now for cars. Um, trucks have gone up very slightly over the last year. Uh, but uh, really, the the technology is there. As I said, uh, uh, the technology is available to to put into cars and trucks today to get the the average fuel economy of our of our fleet of new vehicles that's being sold up to 40 miles per gallon. Uh, that's without giving up performance. That's maintaining safety and and all the the comforts that we've come to expect on our vehicles. And this is not this isn't even considering hybrid technology now. This is. Uh, this is conventional technologies, things like more efficient engines, better transmissions, and better designs and, and material selection, things like high-strength steel and aluminum, and better aerodynamics. All these things can combine to, to get our fuel economy uh, up to 40 miles per gallon, and that's really what was missing uh, from the energy bill, was a significant increase in those fuel economy standards, and that's uh, really disappointing. But why do we need that if we can just drill in Alaska? There's no problem. We can just keep drilling there, right? Well, we just... The, the fact is we just can't drill our way to energy independence. Uh, the fastest and most effective way uh, to reduce our oil dependence is to, uh, is to increase these fuel economy standards. Uh, that, and it's, it's far more cost-effective uh, on, on top of everything else. It's a far more cost-effective solution that will actually save consumers money uh, at the pump and pay for the uh, the modest cost of these technologies on a new vehicle will be paid for within just a couple of years through savings so at the pump. 
So we're talking to Don McKenzie from the Union of Concerned Scientists about the uh, environment, uh, environmental uh, aspects of the uh, of the, the new uh, fuel, uh, the new uh, energy bill, and uh, and on hybrid automobiles. If you can give us, if you're interested, you can give us a call at four one two two six eight nine seven two eight or send email to Bob at leftout.info. I just had uh, another topic to to bring up. I, we don't have. Uh, we probably have about five more minutes uh, to talk uh, to Don. But I, one more topic that I wanted to uh, mention was the issue of pure electric cars. Because I've been a fan of of, um, of pure electric cars, the concept and the um, uh, you know, the, 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 the you know the the, the simplicity and uh, the lack of emissions and um, all that that you get with with pure electric cars. And I know there were. There were a number of companies that produced electric cars in the, in the 90s. A GM produced uh, EV1 and EV2. Toyota produced a car called the RAV4 EV, which uh, one of our robotics professors actually uses. Um, and he talked about here on WRCT last year. It was a very interesting uh, discussion about electric cars. So maybe, Don, uh, well, I'll just uh, give a little summary of the situation with those those companies all pulled uh, their electric cars out of the market. The, uh, General GM had a leasing program where they leased the cars to people. They loved these cars. Uh, then they stopped the program. They had to, re- you know, people had to return all their cars. And as far as I know, they just, you know, crushed them up or something. Uh, um, Toyota had a program where they sold the cars, but then they um, they stopped making them. Um, so maybe Don, if you can comment on on the efficacy of electric cars. Well, you are right there that. Uh Battery electric vehicles really are unparalleled uh, by anything that, that else that we have when it comes to uh, tailpipe emissions because they truly are uh, zero emissions at the tailpipe. And uh, that is something that, that means that uh, that's a great benefit. It's something that we should be looking at in the longer term. But as you said, uh, they did uh, stop production. GM did take back all, all their EVs and, and crush them. Uh, but... The, the reason is that uh, the technology really wasn't where it needed to be uh, to get really broad acceptance. I think the, the numbers you were talking about uh, of sales are, you know, in the hundreds. And uh, we're talking out of a vehicle market of 15 million. Uh, the numbers uh, really weren't there. And I think what, what happened was that these vehicles uh, suffered from limited range and from long charging times. And for many people, while that might work for getting groceries or or commuting to and from work, a lot of people buy their vehicles thinking around their their peak needs, going out of town on the weekend, those longer trips Mm -hmm. where they're not going to be going a short distance and they aren't going to have all all day to recharge their vehicle. And that that was, I I think, really the the big barrier to, to those. Uh, getting uh, broader acceptance. Uh, in addition, the cost uh, was still high for batteries. And uh, the good thing about hybrid vehicles now is that uh, the hybrids need a much smaller battery because they're uh, using the battery to augment the gasoline uh, engine where it's required, when and where it's required. So uh, they can get away with a much smaller battery. And so the uh, high cost of the battery is, is not as, as severe because the battery is that much smaller. Uh, but the good news is that uh, by developing uh, these technologies, uh, developing batteries uh, further and power electronics and manufacturing these things, we can bring the cost down further so that in the future uh, the, that battery technology will be there for us. 
So I wonder if you know offhand about the end-to-end efficiency and environmental impact about electric cars, you know, because, uh, you know, if you take into account, well, for example, the construction of the battery or the uh, the eventual destruction of the battery or the production of electricity needed to charge it and so forth, what is known about that? Well, in general, um, and this is not universal, but in general, the uh, vast majority of the energy use uh, that's related to uh, vehicles uh, comes in the use phase. Uh, the energy used in the manufacture is, is not uh, such a major part, and so the the biggest uh, potential savings are in improving uh, efficiency, uh, in use efficiency. And uh, you you did touch on on a key issue there uh, with uh, electric vehicles. You have to think about where the electricity comes from. If it's uh, coming from an inefficient, dirty coal-fired power plant that may or may not uh, really offer real benefits uh, in in the bigger picture. But I know a little about that. I read an article uh-huh. by an uh, uh, engineer named Phil Karn, who was a big fan of electric vehicles, and he analyzed the pollution of the, the power plants uh, in his area hmm. compared to an ordinary car, and it was like, it was like an order of magnitude less air pollution um, mm-hmm. per, per mile driven um, than a gas car, according to, to Phil Karn. Um. All right. Uh, well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Don McKenzie. We've been speaking with Don McKenzie from the Union of Concerned Scientists about environmental issues, and particularly the new energy bill. And we thank you very much for being on Left Out. Yeah. We will thank take you. we will take a short break, and we will be back in a few minutes. We have a caller on the line who wants to make a brief comment about the uh, the previous guest we had on. Caller, are you there? Hi. Hi. Yeah. Um, I've done some research on the internet about um, fuel efficiency, and for me at least, since I live in town, the most efficient vehicle would be to get an electric bicycle fitted with um, solid rubber tires that have little air pockets in them from, from uh, one of the manufacturers that makes those. There are a couple different ones. So it's like a sponge sort of thing? So, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that way, there are no flat tires ever, and <laughs> they get about 15... Uh, miles of range at uh, or, or 20 miles range and 15 mile an hour average and you can put a, a basket big basket on the front and back of them and, then and, they, and they have uh, retrofit kits where you can just buy a front wheel that has a motor in it and then you put the battery pack on the on the in the back basket that cool. And then, cool. The, and then the electric motor will, will get you up Negley Hill oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's All definitely right. Good. Well, thanks for that suggestion. Well, why don't Why don't you, if you like to, we could put a link to your research on the website. If you, if you could want, send us email, email of Bob, Bob left out that info. Sure. Right. Okay. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you. Okay. Bye. So, um, we have a another guest. Uh, we'll talk about a slightly different topic. Um, uh, it's Michael Cl- Clare. Michael, are you there? Yes. Yes. Thank you for waiting uh, through that last uh, uh, interview. Um, so, um, is it Michael Clare? Is that the correct pronunciation? You got it. Okay. Um, he's a professor um, up in Amherst, uh, Massachusetts, at several colleges. Looks like he's uh, pretty much everywhere there. Um, <laughs> All the Amherst area colleges. Yeah, and he's, and he's uh, the director of a program called um, the Program in Peace and World Security Studies. Uh, and um, he's written extensively on uh, issues of global, the global energy economy, peace, uh, disarmament, and many other things. So um, we should mention we have links to Michael's uh, website on the uh, leftout.info webpage. Yes. So the latest uh, articles that um, uh, Professor 
Claire has written are um, having to do with uh, what's called the um, the twilight era of petroleum. So maybe if you could just talk for a minute, what what do you mean by that? Well, I think probably many of your listeners are familiar with the concept of peak oil, meaning the moment at which the world's oil pumps, oil reservoirs will reach their maximum sustainable output and then begin a decline. And I think we're coming to that point now. We're at the point at which we're moving, we're edging slower, slowly towards the peak of global oil production, and then it's going to level off for a while. And that's what I mean by the twilight era. Oil is not disappearing exactly. It's not the nighttime of oil yet, but it's getting, it'll, it's getting dimmer, and the supply of oil around the world will not increase. And this is a dangerous moment because demand for oil around the world is increasing, not only in the United States, but also in China and India, Europe and Japan. But the oil supply is not growing, and thus you have intensified competition for what's left. And I deeply worry that this is going to lead to violent conflict, is leading to violent conflict over the remaining supplies of oil. Well, it certainly seems relevant to a lot of our policies in the Middle East. But let, let me ask you a question. I mean, on what do you base that those estimates? Because in the course of my lifetime, uh, I remember several times being being told uh, by various people involved in the politics of oil and environmentalists, for example, that uh, that we're running out of oil and there are no further supplies. And I, I distinctly remember in the 70s being told that certainly by now we would be all out of useful per- petroleum resources. And it doesn't seem to be the case. So the moment I feel kind of uh, a little bit uh, puzzled because I, I feel like I have a lack of what I would consider reliable information. Sure. Uh, bear in mind, I'm not talking about the disappearance of oil. Oil will be around for a long time to come. What I'm talking about is the gap between supply and demand. For the past hundred years or so, as demand has increased around the world, the supply has also increased because there have been incentives for oil companies to explore for new oil and bring new oil online. So you've had a more or less match between supply and demand. Now we're at a time when demand is skyrocketing because of enormous economic growth in China and India and elsewhere, but the oil companies are not reporting new discoveries. In fact, they're reporting the opposite. The giant oil companies, Chevron and ExxonMobil and Shell are all reporting the most disappointing results in exploration in decades. They're not finding new oil. So we have what's already been discovered, but it's not enough to satisfy the spurt and demand around the world. And that's why prices are so high today, because of the growing gap between supply and demand, and this is likely to continue indefinitely into the future, only to get worse and worse and worse. So it's really a matter of the amount of oil per unit time, so to speak. How much can be pumped uh, is is what you're saying is the immediate issue. Right. Uh, I mean, up until now, as I say, each year the world's oil supply has increased. What what that means is an average, really, of all of the oil wells in the world. Right. Okay. More new ones have come online to replace the ones that have grown empty. But now we're at a point in time when more oil wells are emptying out uh, than are being discovered and replaced. And this is the long-term trend that we could expect. So I think also in response to Bob's question or comment was, 
Um, the Chevron ad that the article begins with, this is a, in the TomDispatch.com website, which I have a link to on the leftout.info page. Uh, this is a Chevron took out a big ad in, in New York Times and Wall Street Journal that said, uh, basically saying the same thing, that the era of easy oil is over and that's going to be, it's going to start getting, getting, it's getting tougher and tougher. And so even the oil companies are, are, are pessimistic on this, on this question or being honest and also being pessimistic on the question. That's right. The big, the big, um, the central piece to this, the centerpiece is the status of Saudi Arabia, because up until now, we've always been under the impression, or we've been led to believe, that Saudi Arabia can vastly increase its output, double, triple, quadruple its output in the future, and satisfy any imaginable level of demand. This is always what has kept us optimistic. But now, for the very first time, there's information to suggest that even Saudi Arabia cannot increase its output in the the future. And if that's the case, you could kiss the petroleum era goodbye forever, because there is no other country that could replace Saudi Arabia if it runs out. And that appears to be the case uh, of what we're looking at today. So... um... I was looking at some some of the um, predictions in your article. Uh, looks like uh, it, there's a little listed in the article here. It says global oil prices exceeding $150 a barrel. Right now they're at something around 60. Gasoline prices of five dollars per gallon or more. A spike in the consumer price index of more than 12 percent. A protracted recession. A decline in over of over 25 percent in the Standard and Poor's 500 stock index. A uh, crisis between China and Taiwan, and increased friction with Saudi Arabia, Arabia over U.S. policy toward Israel. Those are some of, the, um, some of the predictions that you made in your article. This is actually not predictions I made. I reported on a war game that was held in Washington a month ago called Oil Shockwave. This was a very high-level exercise in which former cabinet officials meant to try to figure out what the United States could do in the event of a major oil crisis. And for the purposes of this simulation, they predicted that there was a civil war in Nigeria and a major terrorist upheaval in Saudi Arabia, substantially cutting back on world oil supplies. So so the, the, this was a, a, a war game, really, essentially, to see what would happen. And their conclusion was, if these events were to take place, that, as you were indicating, that we'd we'd go into a global economic recession and and face severe other effects like $150 a barrel gasoline. Now, I don't predict that those specific events will occur. I just say that in this period that we're in, it's highly likely that we'll have one crisis after another that will push up the price of oil. We're talking to Michael <coughs> Clare about uh, the oil prospects for the future of oil, and um, you can give us a call at 412-268-9728. Uh, what do you think about uh, the Bush energy bill that was just passed yesterday? you have any opinion about that? Any... any uh, well, uh, comments on it? Sure. Uh, President Bush, when he signed the bill in Albuquerque yesterday, said that 
this was an energy plan for the 21st century. And this, in fact, is, is the, the, the deceit at the heart of the bill. This is really an energy bill to perpetuate the 20th century energy paradigm that we inherited when he became president of the United States in 2001. How so? It, it, it's an, the current energy paradigm for the United States, our current energy system, depends on fossil fuels for 90% of our energy. That's, that's uh, oil providing 40% of our energy and natural gas and coal each providing another 25%. Together they provide about 90% of our energy. And these fossil fuels have two problems with them. One of them is they're finite, they're going to run out. And the second, they're the largest uh, producers of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases that are bringing about climate change. So any rational person who cared about the future of the United States would say we have to move away from this obsolete and dangerous energy system and move as quickly as we can to a post-petroleum, post-fossil fuel energy system in the future. But what the energy bill does is provide all kinds of incentives and payoffs and benefits to big coal and big oil and big natural gas to perpetuate the existing energy paradigm rather than to move us in the direction of a new energy system. So uh, <clears throat> just to give you an example, uh, to thinking of examples of what you're, what you're saying is that things to do would be to somehow incentivize uh, cities to, or develop, to, to control development so that development occurs closer to the center of town so the transportation needs are less. Or, well, I, um, and th- this is one part of the picture. We in this country use petroleum mainly for transportation and mainly for, you know, for ground transportation by automobiles, trucks, and buses, and all of the rest. That's that's mostly what we use our energy for. The United States alone uses one-fourth of the world's petroleum on a daily basis, 20 million barrels per day out of 80 million barrels per day worldwide petroleum consumption. And as I say, most of that goes for transportation. And we, we're building a transportation system now that, you know, building more highways, more cars, that will demand more oil in the future, even though it, it, it appears increasingly likely that we're not going to have that oil. So the, what the energy bill should do is to move very swiftly to require that all cars made and sold in the United States are two or three times more fuel efficient than the vehicles we have now. But there's absolutely nothing in the energy bill that requires that. So instead, you know, the the, the message is go on driving your gas guzzlers. Well, what about the provision? We were just talking with Don McKenzie from the Union of Concerned Scientists about the provision in the bill for encouraging uh, tax breaks for for purchasing uh, hybrid vehicles. That's a good indication of, you know, the sort of thing that has to be done. But if you look at the Department of Energy statistics on on what they predict for American car ownership, hybrids will be a tiny, tiny percent of the total automobile fleet 20 and 30 years from now. That's not good enough. We have to demand that existing 
technology, existing automobile technology, conventional internal combustion cars, which is what Americans mainly purchase, be made far more fuel efficient than they are. Uh, you don't need hybrids to get 40 or 50 miles per gallon. You can get that with conventional cars. By making but, them lighter and, and uh, different materials and not requiring such huge accelerations and other, other changes. Exactly. So, so you're making you're making the entirely sensible point that there's an outcome we want, and the means may or may not involve a hybrid vehicle. So, somehow encouraging hybrid vehicles is not really the point. Well, I, I don't I don't want to dismiss hybrids. I own right. one. I think uh-huh. they're a great step forward. But if that's all that the bill has, we're not going to be better off ten years from from now than we are now. It has to be much more sweeping than that. And everybody who studies this comes to the same conclusion. This is not a new idea. Uh, These ideas have been around for a very long time, since the big oil crisis of 1973, when Congress first adopted the corporate average fuel efficiency standards, the CAFE standards. And they have made a difference. But now we have to go another step further in that direction, and that's what the energy bill does not include. Yeah. So the, the, the thing that I, I totally agree with the, the, everything you just said, but I also think there's, there's something else, which I alluded to a second ago, about the sort of driving culture that exists, the fact that yes. we drive too much. I mean, you, it would be great if we could drive cars that were five times more efficient, but we're also just driving too much. I mean, people, the, the suburbs are, building, uh, are, are, are being built too far away. All the malls are being built in weird, weird suburban areas and around Pittsburgh. But you know, You're not from here, but... I mean, there's a huge mall that's called the Robinson Township that they built out there, and it's got like a hundred, you know, gigantic stores, and it's like twenty, thirty minutes outside of town. It's it's outside of Pittsburgh. It's like, it's sorry, I think it's insane that that was even built. Like, there's all this all this space around here. I mean, I don't want to talk about any specific project, but in general, in the United States, you're absolutely right, and it's shocking to me that in the same day that Congress or the same week that Congress uh, passed this ineffective energy bill, it also passed the most expensive, bloated, disgusting, obscene highway bill in American history, hundreds of billions of dollars for new highways. That's only going to encourage more of these far-flung malls and suburbs. Yeah, uh, if I may... Entail more driving. May jump in, uh, Professor Clare. We're talking with uh, Professor Michael Clare from the uh, five colleges in uh, Amherst, Massachusetts. Uh, we have a caller on the line, uh, Donald. Uh, go ahead, please. Yes. Good evening. Uh, two quick points, if I may. Uh, one, we will never be able to even dream up an alternative system to the petroleum-based economy, not just for America, but for the world, just strictly because of our budget crisis. We, we can't sit and think that just increasing miles per gallon is going to be enough. There should have been money set aside for decades for alternative fuel sources. We're not going to be able to just flip a switch. So what is your question? Or, or, what I'm saying is that basically we're done. <laughs> professor, know, professor Claire, is it all over? Should we just give up and throw our hands up and all buy Hummers or what? Well, let me put it this way. The Europeans are, are a generation ahead of us because they have made this switch 20, 30 years ago to, uh, to, to 
by taxing gasoline very heavily, two or three times what it is here, they've they've, uh, provided the pressure for people to trade in big cars for small cars, and they've invested all of that extra tax money in high-speed rail and alternative systems. That's what we're going to need. So uh, it's it's true in a way what the caller says, it, that, that we're going to face a very hard time in the decades out unless we start moving now uh, to make some of these changes. And I would say... Uh, Part of that, I agree with it. The other part is we're not going to be able to change, say, just for the plastics industry, as, as dependent as our society is on plastic alone. Once that oil's gone, you're talking about total chaos. You're not going to be able to make anything. So that's an interesting point. Yeah. Professor Clare, what do you say about that? <laughs> well, uh, plastics only use a small percent of petroleum, and the fact is that Petroleum will be around, we'll have some petroleum for a long time, enough to make plastics and pharmaceuticals. And in fact, I encourage setting aside that the, the last bits of petroleum for, those, for, for, for the most important purposes as we move to something else. But the fact is that we waste immense amounts of petroleum every day in fuel-inefficient vehicles, if we drove cars that were half, I'm sorry, that are twice as efficient as the ones we have now, that we would have vastly more petroleum to use for other purposes. It's the waste we have to eliminate. And, and, quick, and quickly, I would say, I agree with everything the professor says uh, about this, because I look at one other thing that correlates to this in my mind, and that is if you look in the last... 10 to 20 years at the defense industry, most of the weapon systems, or, or most weapons, I should say, that are being developed now are being developed for crowd control. If you look at Jane's Defense Weekly or whatever, any of those type of uh, publications and individuals who look at, at weaponry. So your suggestion nine, nine, is uh, that uh, people in charge know what's coming. Oh, sure, it's coming. <laughs> the only way you know that, that, that they know it's coming is if you look at the types of weapons they're developing and putting tons of money in. It all has to do with population control. So you know that they know it's coming. All right. All right thank, thank, you, you. thank you for your call, uh, uh, Donald and Professor Clare. Oops. Sorry. Professor Clare, are you still there? No, we lost him. Oh, oh I'm sorry. We well, lost I wanted him. to hear his. I wanted to hear his comment on that last, uh, the last comment from Donald. But um, that was an interesting point. Um, well, well, I think one thing. One thing I've wondered what it does touch on is, you know, how do we get how do we get there from here? The question I wanted to ask Professor Claire was, well, the Republican standard Republican line in all of these issues is, uh, what are you worried about? The magic of the market will take care of everything. Why do we Why do we have to do any planning whatsoever? Why do we have to <laughs> consider any any of these issues? Because after all, the uh, uh, the price of oil will become really high. We'll automatically get something better and uh, to replace it, yeah. and we'll go merrily on our way. So. What is what is the answer to that? The answer to that is that it's it's nonsense, and because we built our way into this ridiculous lifestyle that's just completely incompatible with, with with the the world of the the end of oil is is uh, the uh, the the twilight era of oil, and I don't I agree with Donald. I don't know there's going to be a big upheaval to, to try to you know 
adapt to the so new that, I think that's the catch, right, is that, well, it may well be that in some sense you could leave it to the market, but uh, it's a question of, uh, in the long run, it may, may sort itself out, but as famously, uh, as famously Keynes has said, uh, well, uh, in the long run, we're all dead. Uh, so I think uh, maybe uh, that may be a bit the of a The market doesn't look concern. that far in advance. No. I think that may be the big problem. It doesn't yeah. look 20 years in advance. It doesn't look ahead. So there's some planning. Do we have uh, Professor Claire back on the line? Well, I think I think we may be out of time. We're getting close to being out of time. I think we may be getting we had a little technical problem there, and we may have Professor Claire back on. Uh, hello, Professor Claire. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. We had a little technical problem there, and we lost you. It's our fault. Uh, my apologies. I wondered if you might uh, respond. I'm not sure how much of the last caller's last question you heard uh, to do with uh, government planning for the upheavals which will ensue. Oh, I heard that question about mm-hmm. the investment mm-hmm. in riot control. Yes, okay. So I wondered if we. I, I I wouldn't say that I believe that that there's anybody who's th- who's that thought it all through quite this way. I think there is a lot of investment in crowd control for all kinds of reasons, not just not just the oil, not just energy, but uh, all, all kinds of imaginable so upheavals the, that might occur. So in that sense, I think there is a worry, but I wouldn't lay, relate it directly to this problem. So the question I would like to ask you to consider, what I just mentioned to Danny while we we're getting you back on the line, it would be, be a nice way for you to finish up uh, being on the show, is why, what the standard Republican line in this sort of issue would be simply to say, why are you worried about these issues? The market will take care of it itself. What is your uh, response to that? Well, actually, it's very interesting. The Republican right is becoming deeply divided on this particular issue. Uh, but that is to say the question of dependency on imports. There are those Republicans who say, oh, let the market take care of it. But there are other Republicans, a growing number of them, that are saying what the market is doing is, is putting us in bed with the Saudi royal family, which is also in bed with all kinds of people who despise the United States, like radical Islamic fundamentalists, that we've sold our soul to the Saudi royal family and that this is disgraceful and un-American and we have to stop it. And the only way to stop that dependency is by the measures that I described. So I predict you'll see growing divisions within the Republicans on this issue and, in fact, the possibility uh, where, where, where some of the Republican right will, will come to the same conclusions that I have about the need for energy conservation. Uh, in fact, there is a movement in this direction. Well, thank you. Uh, well, on that note, I think we'll uh, we'll wrap it up for today. Thank you, uh, Professor Michael Clare from uh, Five Colleges in Amherst for appearing on Left Out. Uh, we appreciate you having you on the air. Been my pleasure. Thank you uh, all for listening. Uh, this completes another uh, another show for Left Out. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Today's program was ably produced by Matt Toops, and we will be back. Uh, we'll see you in two weeks.